0: Good to be with you. I just came from uh, sunny and beautiful Texas, and I got back, and then they said, there's going to be snow tonight, and I said, what? No. So, friends, I'm glad to be back with you, and uh, today we are studying the Gospel of Mark. I pray you were here last week with uh, Pastor uh, Michael as he was doing the introduction to this Gospel series. Uh, today we'll get into a little bit of some of those topics, but before we do, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks uh, that you invite us into your kingdom, that you, through parable, through mystery, through story, show your way, the way that is a way of discipleship, a way of even suffering in the cross. Oh God, open our eyes today as we study, be present to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would grow closer to you by what we do this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so today we begin the Gospel of Mark, and um, I'm a little partial. I'm biased, truth be told. Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, period. Uh, and there's reasons for that. And I'm hopeful that uh, I didn't get to see all of Michael's notes, but uh, that he shared with you a little bit about how the Gospels were written and some of the ordering and things last week, uh, which can be sometimes a challenge to us. Uh, it is believed by most scholars that the Gospel of Mark was the first of the Gospels to be written, uh, which is confusing to us because when we flip through our Bibles we come to Matthew first, right uh, but instead, Mark is believed to be the first gospel and we 'll talk just a little bit briefly about the the dating before we get into uh, all the details of the Gospel itself, but about when it was written. so there are some historical things that we need to kind of have in our framework in our mind as we go into. Can you see the green at all? Probably not. All right, we're going to go with the blue. So let me know if the blues better, okay? In 64, CE. All right, and if I use letters like CE, I want some of you to translate that in your heads to AD. It means the same thing. CE is common era. Uh, AD, Anno Domini, if you're going with the Latin. Um, so CE, common era. So this is Nero, okay? Rome, Roman Persecution begins. That's what I want you to have as kind of a a framework of where we are. 64 CE, right around 70 CE, is when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Including, this is a big one, including the temple, okay? Okay. This is a huge piece to have in your minds for what's going on in the time. Good morning. And so, uh, then also, around this same time, now I'm not putting these in an order. I want you to kind of put your own order into this. But around 50 to, let's say, 62 CE is when the Apostle Paul is writing, okay? So, Paul's letters are occurring in the midst of this. So, you see... Leading up to the Nero or to the Roman persecution, before Jerusalem is destroyed, that's when Paul is writing, okay? So when we flip open our New Testaments and we come to the Gospels first, it's a little misleading historically in that we are coming to the things that come about 20 years after the fact, okay? Do you get me? So the letters of Paul are kind of our first piece of the New Testament witness. But then these other things are going on in the midst of the life of the early church, And so they they kind of think, we have to write down this story. Nobody has has written down. It's been passed through oral transmission, the story of Jesus. But it hasn't been put to pen. And so most scholars are dating the Gospel of Mark around 65 to 70 CE. Okay? And again, we said this is the earliest of those Gospels. uh, most, Most scholars believe today. There are some who believe on the fringes, otherwise. But uh, so, picture in here what this is, what this worldview is like. So, if if Paul has written letters out to the churches, right? That's the historical piece for the for the transmission of the church. But then there's these persecutions going on from Rome, even to the point where Jerusalem gets destroyed and the temple included in that. Okay, it's around that time that the gospel of Mark is written. Now, there's some things that we should think about with this. What, what do you imagine is, is the expectation or, the, or the, the concerns on the minds of early Christians at this time? Any thoughts? What's that? Survival, Survival. absolutely. There's fear involved. Go ahead over here. What, what, Jesus went. He's coming back. We've heard this story. When? What? Why? Where? Where? How's it going to happen? Expectation, looking, hope, right? Anything else that comes to mind? What does this mean, right? This is the center of, of, of Jewish worship. And remember, our early Christians considered themselves Jews. They lived and worshipped. They participated in the life and uh, the community of the temple, right? And so the temple being destroyed was detrimental for the early Christians as well. This was the seat, this is where they'd grown up, you know. Um, this was their, their Christ church. Only, you know, take that to the nth degree, right? And it's destroyed. And so the gospel mark is believed to have been written around this time. Whether it was after the temple being destroyed or just before is unclear, but that's around the time that they're thinking. Now, some other questions that get asked around when you talk about the Gospels is who's the author, right? Who wrote this down? Um, now, the the, the uh, author's name is, of course, is it? Whoa, challenges. Whoa, hang on. You're not sure. Mark is believed to be the name. Mark is a fairly generic name in the time uh, in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Mark was like a John or a Smith. I mean, it's it's just... It's a, a, a fairly familiar name. Now, early interpreters, even around uh, 130 CE, would have thought that Mark was Peter's interpreter, right? was the one that w- worked with Peter, um, Simon Peter, to interpret uh, and uh, to kind of share the stories that Peter had. Okay. Now, this is 130 CE we're talking about that people believe this. So again, a little after the fact, right, if we're going based on the dating system. Now they didn't. the 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 suggestion, though, is that even in the early interpreters, that the uh, writer of Mark hadn't met Jesus, didn't actually interact directly with Jesus. Um, What's that? That's a question. Um, It's possible. If if we're believing it's the Mark that followed Peter around, then it's possible he knew Paul, Uh, but it's unclear. He doesn't write in the same style as Paul. Um there are some who suggest that if you flip to like Philemon, Philemon twenty four, there's a mark mentioned there. Uh and some have said, Oh, there's the name Mark. Now the trouble is even early interpreters were going and looking and saying, You can't just go, Oh, there's somebody named Mark. Again, the name Mark is pretty common. It's easy to say, Oh, there's a mark over there and there's a mark over there, they must be the same mark. Well, not necessarily. Now, most of the arguments of, of, uh, about authorship, even across time, have been fairly inconsistent. So it's not always been clear who wrote this gospel. It is clear that it was an early member of the Christian community. That's about all we can say. Now, the gospel itself doesn't claim any particular authorship, um, Unlike uh, Luke, for example, that references Theophil- Theophilus, excuse me, uh, it kind of gives us some place markers, right? Even Paul says, "I write in my own hand," you know, "I, the apostle," right? But Mark doesn't give us any of those pieces. The gospel doesn't claim authorship for itself, but some modern scholars have argued that the author was that young man who flees away from the cross, right? Leaves nothing behind. His clothes even get left behind. Do you remember the story? Some have suggested that that's the author, but then going back, it's suggested then that the author hadn't known Jesus, so it doesn't make sense there either. So there are some challenges here. Most uh, scholarship agrees with the earliest assessment of Papias, that one from 130 CE, that the author, here's the quote, had neither heard the Lord nor had he followed him. And so we are best to think of this author as a member of the early Christian community and leave it at that, not to stress about who wrote it. If we get anxious about that, just let your, let your, take a deep breath and let it out and then we'll read it, read the gospel some more today. Um, There are some things that we can determine though about the author and the community based on the book itself. It's written in Greek, okay? Pretty basic Greek, but it's written in Greek. Um, the author translates some of the Aramaic words. So if you remember uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus raises the dead girl, right? And says, Talitha koum. We all recognize the Aramaic words in scripture. It's funny, uh, things that jump out to us. When, when they're said out loud, we go, oh yeah, I remember that story. So Talitha koum, which means little girl, get up. That's translated for us. We, you and I wouldn't have any clue what talitha kum means in normal day, but the author translates almost every Aramaic phrase, so that implies that his audience was not familiar with Aramaic. You get me? So he, he, he writes in Greek, translates to Aramaic, and yet then, throughout the course of the book, explains the Jewish practices, Right? So when something is a little different, maybe it's feeding at table or washing hands uh, or washing the pots like the Pharisees tend to do, right? These Jewish practices are explained to the reader, to the hearer. But the trouble is, they're not always explained accurately. Sometimes the, 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 the meaning is there, but the actual details don't make sense, okay? according to actual Jewish custom. So this it seems to imply that the author wanted to familiarize the audience with Jewish customs, but was not familiar enough with them himself, (laughs) right? So he himself possibly was a latecomer to the Jewish community, right? That's like, you ever go into a church uh, that you're visiting and you kind of see the practice of how they do communion. It looks a little different than we do. Uh, I went to a a Lutheran church once and they, they went up and they kneeled up before the altar and they held out their cup, and they poured the juice into the cup. And I thought, I wonder what that means. It'd be like me trying to give meaning to that now, not actually having been a member of that community, right? So he explains some of the Jewish things going on. He writes in Greek. He explains the Aramaic. Now, there are some things within the book that seem to imply um, that it was written to a lower socioeconomic class, most of the story takes place away from the big cities. Uh, now you could say, well, Jesus just didn't go to the big cities, but that's not quite accurate based on what we see in the other Gospels. So in Mark, we see the emphasis on the, the, the country bumpkin, if you will, <laughs> the ones on the fringes of society, not, not near the cities. Most of the stories are related to farmers, to peasants, to the poor. And so we're seeing that potentially this was written then to connect to people on a lower socioeconomic class. But we'll also see that, as we'll see in our in our um, explanation here in just a moment, that Galilee has a strong focus. Now you and I know the name Galilee, but it's not a major metropolis at the time. It's a small town. Uh, and so we'll see that Galilee seems to have a big focus in this. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing here, he, he focuses on Galilee, but... The author, again, doesn't seem to have a strong grasp of Palestinian geography. He's, he's writing about the area, uh, but sometimes the terrain isn't quite the way it would have been. And so we've got some interesting things going on here. Some of the descriptions are as though viewed from the outside. So think about that as we're approaching this and as we go into uh, the gospel itself, what it looks like. My suggestion to you is that potentially the author of Mark is writing from somewhere more like Syria than from Judea, which could be interesting for the meaning of how the gospel gets transmitted beyond the gospel itself. Let's look briefly at structure before we dive in. Some things to be aware of. As we go, the way I've broken it up is not the only way you can break it up. You can look at the Gospel of Mark and, I mean, scholars will will divide this up in a million myriad of different ways. But for today, what I want you to think of is mainly two parts surrounded by a couple of other pieces. Part one is in Galilee, okay? Notice it takes up a good chunk of the Gospel, 116 to 821. Over here, part two is in Jerusalem, or centered around Jerusalem. And again, that's basically the rest of the gospel, 11.1 through 15.47. There's some other parts to this. There's the beginning, the title, the prologue, the introduction, okay? And of course, the epilogue. What does this mean? What to do with it? How to end it, okay? And then in the middle, there's the way, the process between Galilee into Jerusalem. Is everybody following me so far? Okay? Galilee to Jerusalem and the stuff. That goes on the edges of those, okay? Those are the big pieces. Now, if you look, the, these are even broken down. The part one and part two have some kind of parody here. So, in, in the first part, there's authority, rejection, and new community. Then there's a central discourse. Chapter four is all about parables and the mystery of the kingdom of God, okay? Followed then by crossing borders as we get to, get to transitional elements. Uh, going and, and visiting the de Demoniac and things like that. Yes, Roger. <laughs> by comparison to some of the major cities. Yes, so if we're talking about Galilee as the region, that's a different animal. Yeah, so if you think of it as Galilee as the city. That's what I want you to think of. This is where where we're talking about here. As compared to the like Decapolis, any of the cities in uh, the ten cities, right? Galilee is more like rural countryside compared to the city centers. Does that make sense to you, Roger? All right. Um, Part two in Jerusalem. We've got the public demonstration and, of course, conflict, which we'll see a lot of conflict in this gospel. Uh, and then the Central Discourse, again, same concept as in part one, except this time it's about historical troubles and the coming of the Son of Man. That language, Son of Man, gets used in the Gospel of Mark here. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus' trial and death. There are other pieces along the way, as we'll find, but those are kind of the big framework. Any, any questions about that so far? Sure. Sure. Very possibly, yeah. I mean, so a Gentile who came into the Jewish community late, by comparison. Precisely. Yes, at the time, it would have been uh, unclear whether Christianity was related to Judaism, as a sect, if you will, of Judaism, or if it was its own separate animal. We think of it as completely separate, right? Because in our modern day, that's how we exist, but at the time, it was very murky about how that transition occurred or didn't occur. Again, the early church still worshipped at the temple. Exactly. Yeah, there were there were uh, issues about how much do you follow Judaism, right? Yeah, do we need to go and get circumcised? Do we follow the same ritual uh, issues, uh, purity laws, things like that? Yeah, so the, the church was still in that murky time. I will say... Um, going back to the to the timeline, the temple being destroyed brought some clarity to that. whether the church was happy or not is a whole different question right It still lived in fear of it, uh, but it brought some separation from Judaism. Um, that being said, so we 've got our structure to work from let 's dive in. make sure you have your your Bibles open if you need an extra Bible there 's more around we can share. Um, Turn your gospel or turn your gospel. Turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark if you would. We're going to start right at the very beginning. And don't worry, we're not going to analyze verse by verse, but we are going to jump in here a little bit. So open your Bibles. And if I say open your Bibles a couple of times, it's because I don't see all the Bibles open. I trained to be a teacher of children, so bear with me. <laughs> we're all children of God, right? <laughs> So the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to ask for readers occasionally to help me out. If someone would be willing, would someone? This is the easiest one. Would you read verse one of the Gospel? Would you mind reading for us? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Perfect. <laughs> I think we'll read it one more time just for clarity's sake. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, here's some interesting things. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. news. Okay? So we've got this new concept. I don't want uh, Mark is doing something different than other writers of his day or had come before him have done. Okay? The word gospel, we treat it in a very odd way in our world today. So we go, go proclaim the gospel. Anybody want to define what that is for me in just a two sentence? Anybody? What the gospel is. If you were asked to go share the gospel, what does that mean? Share it in a two sentence. Anybody? Okay, that's pretty good. I like it. She said, go tell the story of Jesus Christ. Not bad. I like it. The trouble is, Mark takes 16 chapters to do it. And he's the shortest one, right? It's not an easy transmission, right? We talk about proclaiming the gospel as though it's something simple to do. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to perform for us, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Prepare the way of the Lord. We hear even in this, the beginning, right? It starts with John the Baptist, right? That's where Mark goes. Mark goes, see, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. So we've got this interesting thing. Mark starts off with the beginning, the very literal beginning of what he understands to be the good news. Now, his beginning is not where the other gospels start. We'll see you later. Um The other Gospels go elsewhere, and there's reason for that, and I'll let Pastor Michael tell you why, if he doesn't, ask him. Uh, (laughs) But today, we're going to start with Mark. He starts with John the Baptist. Why is that important for the Gospel of Mark? Anybody have an idea, just a theory? Beginning of Christ's ministry, right? I mean, John proclaims that there's someone coming after. hmm That's the, the inaugural moment, right? God opens up the heavens, or, or the language is literally tears open the heavens, which I think is an interesting moment. If, you, if we view heaven and earth as separate, God says, no longer, right? The beginning of the good news starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it starts here with John the Baptist, who, as we learn later in the gospel, pre, or not prefigures. Is an after-the-fact, an antecedent that looks back to Elijah, right? One of the early prophets who proclaimed the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. So we've got this kind of this beginning of the good news, and I want you to remember verse one. Read it out loud, somebody. Does anybody have it? Since she stepped out, one more time. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm going to repeat that to you again later. Hold on to it, okay? Keep it in your brains. Okay? Now, as we said in our overview of the structure, the gospel kind of goes through this journey of where Jesus, the Son of God, goes. Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, as I said, the gospel of Mark, is, or Mark is doing something very different here. It's not, he's not writing a biography, right? When, we, when you said, tell the story of Jesus Christ, Mark is saying that, but he's not saying, you need to go down and report all of the different places he went, exactly where they were, and, and who he talked to, and exactly what happened. That's a history, a biography, right? That's not what Mark is doing. Mark has invented a new way of telling a story. Imagine it as a genre. Anybody like mystery novels, or, or historical fiction, or, or, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're just a, a, a non-fiction reader and good for you because I can't make it through them. Um, but, <laughs> but Mark creates a new genre, the gospel, the good news, right? So we associate the word gospel purely with Jesus Christ, but if you wanted to go beyond that, you probably could. But what is a gospel in comparison to a biography? Scholars have wondered these kinds of things for 2,000 years. So you're, you should be left puzzling for a little bit. Now, why do we have four Gospels? Different views, different perspectives on what's happening, right? Are any of them a biography? Come on, say it with me. Oh. No, they're not biographies, they're Gospels. Gospels have for lack of a better word, an agenda. They're there to share with you good news about who Jesus Christ is. And Mark tells you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a meaning here, a purpose here. So stylistically, we're going to find things that are different. That's why when you read Mark and then you read Luke, you go, that doesn't go in the same order. Or those details are different. Or when you get to the Gospel of John, you just go, he wrote a completely different gospel. Like, it's wildly different. Gospel is a genre. Think of it that way throughout the rest of this course, and it will help you along the way. It's a way of conveying the good news in a particular way. Okay? So our question as we go through today will be, what is Mark's particular way? Why is Mark writing this new form of genre? Why is Mark writing a gospel. Okay? Now, one scholar described the gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with a long introduction. Okay? Which is often how our creeds tend to think of it, right? When we say like the Apostles' Creed, how do we do it? Anybody want to go talk about Jesus' life that you find in the Apostles' Creed? What do you find? Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffering under Pontius Pilate. Boy, that's a quick jump between there. Hang on. We don't even have the born part in Mark. Virgin Mary's not even right here. We go right to suffering under Pontius Pilate. When we say the creed, we are missing a few chapters, right? right. We are missing most of the Gospels. If you wanted to break it down word by word, we're missing most of the words of the Gospels when we jump from Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So I think it's more than just a passion prediction or passion story with a long introduction. I think there's more to it here. We miss a lot of what Jesus is doing in his life. Jesus' death is monumentally important, don't get me wrong, but his life is monumentally important as well. So before we get to Jesus' death, there's a couple of other things. Now, if you would, for just a moment, flip open. You probably are still at Mark 1. So Mark 1, 16 to 20. And is anybody willing to read that for me in just a moment? I just need to know who's going to read it for me. Rosie, you'll read it in just a moment. What I want you to listen for as Rosie reads are words like immediately. Okay? Or and. And. Because Mark has a tendency to start almost every sentence with the word and. So, Rosie, if you would, loud and proud. Thank you, Rosie, very much. Anybody catch how many times he started a sentence with and or used the word immediately? Twice immediately immediately in just that couple of verses. And the word and? He starts two or three sentences in that paragraph alone with the word and. Yeah, English teachers, anybody? (laughs) You know, there's that moment. Um, And yet I love the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) So we've got this effect and Mark does this throughout the entire gospel. They immediately did this. Immediately Jesus went here, and he did this, and he went from there, and then he did this. What do you find you hear when you experience that kind of writing? Excitement. It's driving, right? And then they went to Florida. <laughs> right? Right? Hopefully not immediately. I give it a little time. But. <laughs> and so you've got this kind of progression, this rolling along that Mark tends to do. He's a storyteller in the truest sense, and that he wants to keep his audience riveted. Right here. Jesus did this. And then from there he went on to the next place. He healed this guy. And then he went on and he talked to his disciples about these things. And they asked him these questions. And he said this. And, 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 and. and. He's suggesting that the story just keeps rolling. He's drawing you in, but he wants this excitement as you're going forward. So the word immediately, which is used, I think, 41 times in this gospel. It's a short gospel for the word immediately to be used that many times. The effect of this is that we are drawn in and driven forward with the story. We start here, but it doesn't stay here. It moves quickly on where Jesus goes and what he does. Now, there's some other things that I want you to know about what Mark does within his story. And you can start to see it a little bit, even in the way we've structured this today. There's something that is known as, and I'm going to write the word up here, intercalation. And everybody said, huh? Okay. There's The way that uh, my professors in seminary taught this, Here's an intercalation. Two things that relate to one another with a big old patty in the middle. So imagine it as a sandwich, if you will. Okay? So you've got what are called now Markin' sandwiches. Okay? So Mark has a tendency to do this quite a bit. He'll tell you a story, and he'll tell a related story down here. But in between, he tells something else. Now the effect of what Mark is doing is he's giving new meaning to this something else. So he says this one and he says this one, but these two things, by framing this patty, if you will, this middle story, shapes it, gives it new meaning. So when I say Mark writes a gospel, not a history, or not a biography, I mean he's purposefully putting these two things together to give meaning to this thing. Does that make sense? Intercalation. Everybody say the word. Mark and sandwich. Much easier to say. (laughs) I will. Here we go. So um, one of my favorites is in, let's see, did I write it down? Oh, chapter 5. Flip over to chapter 5. Verse 21 to 43. So um, this is a little bit of reading. Um, Does anybody care to read all of that or does anybody need a little break in the middle? Chapter 5, uh, verse 21 through verse 43. It's only 20 some verses. Thank you very much. If you would, loud for the group. When Jesus had
1: crossed again to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was like a Then one of the leaders of the synagogue, named, him, named Jairus, came and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly. you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him <clears throat> and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat.
0: Thank you very much, Nancy. So you've got these two stories. Really, it's one story divided in two with one thrown right in the middle, right? When we read through it, we think, oh, he was just on his way to take care of the problem that he's dealing with. But no, Mark is putting this here. Mark is saying there's something connected about these stories. Now, let's go through some of those details, real quick, of those stories. Let's start with the healing of, of the woman with the issue of blood, as so many uh, Bible versions describe this story. What happens? Just summarize, real quick. hmm. She fesses up, right? Yeah. So she touches his garment. Did Jesus intend for this moment? No. He wasn't even aware. He didn't know what it had happened. He didn't even know who had done it, right? But he, felt the power. he felt it. Interesting. All right. Tell me more about this woman. What do we know about this woman? She shouldn't, have been there. shouldn't have been there, right? If we think of purity laws, right? There's some, some separation that should be happening. She shouldn't be out in the middle of the crowd. Great faith? Absolutely. We're making some inferences about her right at this moment. What what does the text tell us about this woman? Suffered for a long time. time. How long? Twelve years. It's been a long time. All of the little girl's life. How long has the little girl, or how old is the little girl? Twelve years old. It's not a coincidence. This woman has suffered the entirety of the little girl's life. The little girl is the daughter of whom? Jairus. 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 The leader of the synagogue. Important man in the community, right? He's asked Jesus, Jesus comes. Jesus obviously has some respect for this guy. He goes to heal the daughter of the synagogue leader, and on the way a woman who's been dealing with this her whole well, the whole whole entirety of the little girl's life touches him a woman whose name we don't know a woman whose father's name we don't know a woman who for Jesus ends up being just as important as the daughter of the synagogue leader We've got some interesting parallels here. And Mark wants us to go, to pay attention to the relationship between this daughter and this daughter. For we are all children of God. Mark is pointing us to these two women and saying, what about in your world? Which one are you passing by without seeing? Which one are you noticing because... They're connected to the leader of the synagogue. Mark wants us to pay attention. And so Mark does this from time to time. There are several things throughout the gospel of Mark. This is just one example. Where Mark tries to get us to see a bigger picture. Now the thing is, the gospel never gives us the ready-made answer. Here's what you should think about this. Ready, go. That's not Mark's agenda at all. He's writing a gospel, not a biography. Not a history. Not <laughs> nonfiction. He's writing a story to get us involved. So then the uh interpolation here mm-hmm. that the daughter of Uris and the daughter raising the daughter of Urus and the, the patty. Mm-hmm. The patty. Yep. There's the healing of the woman The healing of the woman with the issue of blood. This is the sandwich. Right. To so draw your attention in, I invite you when you read through the Gospel Mark to look for these moments. To be intentional, thinking about how does this story relate to this story when you see connections. Jesus uh, talks about his family earlier in the Gospel. I think it's around chapter three or four, four or five. Um, Jesus describes his family, right? And the same thing happens. I invite you to look for that story as homework today. Uh, about how Jesus describes his family in relation to Beelzebul, so um, <laughs> that's one we'll cover another day. Um, but Mark does this from time to time, including Mark doing even larger things like bookends. There are some interesting bookends that Mark does uh, throughout the gospel. Uh, if someone over here would flip to, would one of you two gentlemen please flip to chapter eight, verse twenty-two? And someone over here, chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 42. So, 822 and 1042. We don't need to go into the whole story, but what's the story that you find there? A blind man being healed, right? Now, the one thing about this story that's interesting. So, Jesus lays his hands upon his eyes and he looks intently and was, uh, excuse me, um, I'm reading back too far. Verse 23, Jesus lays his hands on him and he says, he asks him, do you see anything? The man in verse 24 says, and he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Jesus' healing didn't work, right? At least not the first time. Over here, chapter 10, what do we find? 42. What's the story about? Let me make sure I give you the right verse. Can you a second? Oh, I didn't go far enough. 46. Sorry. So we've got Bartimaeus over here, blind man, being healed by Jesus. Over here, blind man, being healed by Jesus. The first time, what happens? Starts to, it doesn't quite work. He sees people walking around, and he describes them as trees. Jesus has to lay his hands on again before he's fully healed. Over here, what happens with Bartimaeus. There's the word immediately, by the way. Immediately he regains his sight. Yes? I'm still struggling why you find out the girl 12 years old, woman Oh. I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't assume there was a relation between these two, but I would assume that there is something about this woman and something about this girl that we need to pay attention to. And again, Mark's not spoon feeding us here. They're both 12 years old, or one is 12 years old, one has been dealing with the issue for 12 years, right? One is the daughter of a synagogue leader, the other is a woman on the street that nobody would have even recognized had they gone by her. And yet they're connected for us. Mark is trying to say, we need to pay attention beyond the ones that we're called to. There's more to it. There's a whole lot we could do with this. We could spend a whole day on this story, that story in particular. Going back to the blind men, we've got the one who's over here who's only partially healed at first, and Bartimaeus, does he even lay his hands on him? Doesn't even have to touch him. Your faith has made you well. So we have the blind man partially healed and the blind man who's healed without even touching. So what do we find in between? This is a big section. That's from 8 uh, what I say, 8:40 or 8:22 to 10:46. In the middle, we find three passion predictions. Jesus talks about that he will have to suffer and die on the cross, right? Three times. By the way, number three is important too, but we'll get to that later. In this sandwich, we find the blind man and the blind man. This one partially healed, this one fully healed. The three passion predictions in the middle. Mark has created a giant sandwich with layers upon layers of toppings that we could take forever to sift through. And I invite you to later. Uh, But Mark is trying to get us to focus in on what happens that this one is partially healed at first and this one is healed without him even touching at all. There's a lot that happens in these passion predictions, including the question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Which I would argue is the quintessential, the central question of this gospel. Who do you say that I am? And Peter exclaims, you're the Messiah. Not having any idea what that means, right? Because messianic expectations at the time were that uh, the, the Messiah was going to come in force to destroy the Romans, the oppressors of the Jewish people, right? There's more to it, but that's uh, imagine that concept of a military figure coming in power. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, shh, don't tell anybody, right? That's what happens inside of this sandwich, We get this thing called the the Markan secret or the Messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark. It's in the other Gospels a little bit, but Mark emphasizes it. Where every time Jesus does a healing, or Jesus talks to somebody and they recognize him, or a demon recognizes who Jesus is, he does what? He tells them, don't tell anybody. Don't share it. Now there's a couple of theories, and I'm going to read these because I would never be able to summarize them. There's a lot of theories about why this happens, this messianic secret, which is the term that was coined about 100 years ago, around 1909. The messianic secret. There are two theories in this book, and I will tell you I don't agree with either of them. So, we'll start there. The first theory, that Jesus commanded silence to keep the uninstructed multitudes from learning about his non-political messiahship and perverting it into... A political one. Do you get me? For the people hearing and going, oh, he's the Messiah, that must mean he's here to overthrow the Romans. you get me? Number two, the other theory, that Jesus did not, in fact, understand himself to be the Messiah. Everybody catch that one? The other theory is that Jesus himself didn't believe that he was the Messiah and that the early Christians had to kind of go, well, why didn't he believe that? And here's how we're going to explain it, is that he was telling people to keep it quiet. Again, not my theories. Instead, I would argue this point, which comes from Luke Timothy Johnson. So Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel that this is, it's important in Matthew that the disciples understand and communicate the revelations of Jesus to others. In Matthew, that's important. But Mark's point is different, says Johnson. The disciples are not given the gift to know. And what they have been given is instead the singular mysterion. Anybody want to guess at what that word means? Mystery. Not a secret, but a Mystery. This may well be the key word in Mark's narrative, says Johnson. One can scarcely miss the associations it suggests with some other things, the Mysterium, mysterium tremendum aphenosium, which Jesus himself I'll translate. Jesus himself is the singular mystery of the kingdom, that Jesus is the mystery of the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus is that, and Jesus' life is more than just his teachings and his healings, but it also includes, as we said, his passion. If he's healing and a demon recognizes him, is it time to share that story? Not yet. The story hasn't been completed. You see, my understanding of this mystery, this messianic secret, is that Jesus wants the full story on the table before it's told. Jesus doesn't want it going out that the Messiah is here because they don't know what that means. And so until he has gone to the cross and died, we can't understand what it even means that this is good news. We hear the word gospel and we try to summarize the story of Jesus. Well, the story of Jesus isn't complete without his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so the messianic secret is broader than just, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah who has to die. Mm. It's still a mystery. Wait, not yet. Yes. Revelation has not finished, if you will. Right? Go ahead. Yes. In this entire story, Jesus was living in a period of the Romans dominating. Precisely. Exposed, if you will. Yes. Yes. Prematurely got him killed.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Precisely. Those theories can be related. Yes. I think for me, the central piece is theological whereas the focus of the first theory is purely political. But I think that there can be relationship between those. I agree. That you could say Jesus was doing it because his story is not complete. However, his story would not be complete without the continuation that would have been prevented by the political nature of the time. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got some interesting things going on here as we look at Mark. Mark. We've only got a few minutes left, so I want to get to our ending before we get too far. If you would, flip to Mark chapter 16. All right, and in this version, uh, I'm on page 829. I don't know which Bibles everybody has. But so I'm just going to read for a little bit here, and then we're going to kind of experience something together. Sixteen chapter or chapter sixteen verse one. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. This is after Jesus is dead. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, uh, excuse me, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb?" When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Why did I close the book? Story's over. But, in your Bible, it says either shorter ending or longer ending, or both there. Right? So hang on, i got to open back up. Because somebody said, it can't end there. Early scholars believe, modern scholars believe, that both the shorter ending, which you find in that next little bracketed section, and the longer ending that starts at verse 9, were added later. Now, very likely. Here's why. Or here's why I think. Okay? Okay. When you get to the end of verse 8, the women went out and fled the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You have no other Gospels, by the way, at this time. The only other writings you might have are of Paul. And the story ends with, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And you know better, right? you know that the story didn't end there. That those women had to tell someone. Right? And so you say, let me fix this. Right? Now we could read it into those longer endings and the shorter ending and go into why those things are there. But for me, and, and the way historical criticism works is the most difficult reading is, and shortest reading is often the best. Because we like to fix things. And I mean that true as, as scholars too. When, we, when we've read something and we know better, because we always know better. We try to fix them. And so we write it down. Now, there are lots of things that we could do with those endings. And this is where you start to get into some of those things like... Um, uh, picking up snakes and things like that, which is why I'm not going to go there today. Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate it. I, I almost brought some from camp. Um, but so for me, the gospel ends at verse 8. And I, here's why. Here's why I like this. They are told that Jesus is going ahead of them to where? Back to Galilee. Right? Back to the future? No. Um, The story is powerful in that we find that it comes back to the beginning. Okay? The women were terrified. Absolutely, they would be. That's a real human condition. They've gone to the tomb expecting to anoint a dead man. And they found he's not there. Of course they're terrified. But of course the story doesn't end there. But what happens when the story ends there in our book, in our Bible? If we close the book right there, what happens for you? What's that? The resurrection happens and yet there's no story. Instead, what was it, Rosie? Oh. See, I would argue there's more hope in this story than you know. In the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of John, we get resurrection appearances and we go, gee, isn't that nice? At the end of the Gospel of Mark, we are left to go, who do you say that I am? The Mark and secret still hangs in the air and the question is now posed to the one hearing it. Who do you say that I am? Every other gospel gives you a nice, neat, tidy ending that you could read, close the book, and go on about your sinful life as you please. The gospel of Mark ends in a way that challenges you, yes, you, to do something about it. You've been told that God's, or Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. Better get your bottom moving, right? This isn't them back then. This is you right now. The gospel doesn't end in a neat and tidy fashion because the gospel isn't done. Anyone want to read chapter 1, verse 1 again for me? This is the beginning of the good day about Jesus Christ and the God. This is the beginning of a good day about Jesus Christ and the God is the beginning of the good news of the Son of God. This, this whole book is the beginning. Guess what part you have to play? It's not over. It's not done. It continues with you. We're going to close with one thought. I know it's about that time. There are many more things I wanted to tell you today, but... I'll close with a quote. I don't usually like to do that, but I can't say it better than this guy. Eugene Boring wrote this. He says, As Jesus had communicated the inexpressible reality of the kingdom of God in parables that point to it in ambiguous, deceptively history-like, open-ended stories that called for participation and decision by the hearer. See, Jesus taught in parables that drew you in so Mark wrote his gospel that points beyond itself to the meaning of God's act in the Christ event as an ambiguous, deceptively history-like, open-ended narrative that calls for participation and decision by its reader. As Jesus spoke in the kingdom of God in parables, so Mark speaks of Jesus in this new narrative form that is in itself an extended parable. And so, my friends, the parable is before us. Who do you say that I am? Let us pray. God of grace, send us out into your world to live the gospel, to live the good news, not merely hear it, not merely read it, but instead to follow where you have led us, O God. Shape us and mold us by your holy word today and always, in Jesus' name. Amen.